Hello and welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson and this week I am concluding my mini-series on eco-fascism. This week I am talking about eco-fascist politics and policies that have been pursued by currently existing right-wing organizations or by organizations that have collaborated or are collaborations between fascist or right-wing organizations and environmental groups. I'm going to start out by talking about that last bit. Uh, This is called a green-brown alliance. Green, of course, because of environmentalism, and brown because brown is the color that is typically associated, at least in the Western world, with fascism because of the color of the Nazis' first paramilitary organization's shirts. They were called the brown shirts, and so brown is the color that's associated with fascism. So green-brown alliance is a collaboration between fascist groups and environmental groups. And on the face of it, at least in the United States and in much of Europe, that might seem pretty incongruous because green political movements, such as the Green Party in the United States and most green parties in much of the rest of the Western world, are typically associated with social liberalism and with uh, the left in general. However, the claim of people who try to create a green-brown alliance is that that doesn't necessarily need to be the case. Right, that environmental policies don't necessarily need to be associated with social liberalism or social leftism or even with economic leftism necessarily. Uh, So the idea of a green-brown alliance, for example, is that it might foster a collaboration based on things like national health or, you know, that the healthiness of the nation, its land and its people. Right. Those are the sort of things that's the sort of language that fascists and other right wingers often use to describe their politics. And it's something that could conceivably be really palatable to a lot of people who believe in the environment, right? We need to preserve the nation's health. We need to preserve the health of the people in the nation. Uh, That kind of like discussion of sanitation or national well-being is this kind of attempt to triangulate between right-wing groups and environmental groups. In the present day, there is only one big, big, big example of a green-brown coalition, and this is the government that is currently in government in Austria. This is the green-brown coalition, uh, which took power in Austria in 2019. The government is led by Austria's People's Party, which is a center-right party, although it's an increasingly right-wing party in Austria, Uh, and it was formed after the People's Party previous coalition partner, the Freedom Party, which is an earnestly post-fascist organization, collapsed. Uh, so they had this collaboration with a just a very right-wing party prior to 2019. In 2019, however, there was a new parliamentary election and there was a new coalition that formed. And the People's Party, again, this like sort of increasingly right-wing, center-right-wing party, formed a coalition with the Green Party. Now, like the Green Party, say, in the United States or in much of the rest of Europe, the Green Party in Austria is a socially liberal party. You know, they believe in personal freedom, they are pro-queer, they are not anti-immigrant. The People's Party is a very socially conservative party. They are in favor of rolling back queer rights. They are extremely anti-immigrant. They are extremely skeptical of the presence of people of Middle Eastern descent or people who practice Islam in Austria. And that is the compromise that the Green Party made with them. They made an agreement to form a government whose policies would be anti-Muslim, anti-immigration, but pro-climate change action, 
on the basis of the People's Party's desire to preserve, you know, Austria for the Austrians. A similar formation was seen not in a coalition between political parties, but in uh, the policies of a single political party in the Front National's most recent platform under Marianne Le Pen. Le Pen exposed herself in this most recent French election as a classic eco-fascist. Uh, her policies were a blending of, you know, sort of like pining for the pastoral past of France, you know, a uh, past of like horse-drawn carriages and organic farming with racism. Uh, this is promoting a return to an imagined nostalgic period of an unsullied, perfect, and indisputedly French countryside. What they mean by that, of course, is a France that is free of people who the right wing in France do not perceive to be French, namely, again, as in the Austrian case, Muslims or people of Middle Eastern or North African or African descent. Now, here, as in other cases, Marine Le Pen used the implicit comparison that is often found on this sort of like green brown politics, this implicit comparison of immigration and invasive species. Uh, sometimes this comparison was extremely overt, and sometimes it was a lot more, you know, under the table, you know, a little bit more implied. Uh, Marianne Le Pen also opposed wind power as a blight on the French landscape, and she is instead pro-nuclear power. This is a typical stance by conservative people on the environment, you know, saying that, like, renewable energy actually hurts the environment more than non-renewable sources, or that it uh, destroys the countryside, or that it eliminates farmland that, you know, good French or American or German or English or whatever, you know, fill-in-the-blank farmers really need to use. A sort of middling ground when it comes to a right-winger's approach to environmentalism can be found in the BJP, uh, that is Modi's party, in India. The BJP and Modi in general claim to be very pro-environmental legislation. In practice, of course, their policies have been serious destruction for the environment in India and also serious rolling back of a lot of environmental policies and protections that India has had. Uh, there has been a lot of push in India under Modi to roll back pollution and cleanup rules that were passed after the Bhopal chemical disaster. Uh, this was a major factory disaster that occurred in Bhopal, India, uh, when a factory run by Union Carbide exploded and killed uh, uh, over 10,000 people in 1986. In the wake of this disaster, India passed a lot of environmental regulation, but many governments, including and perhaps especially the BJP, really don't like those regulations. You know, they see environmental regulation as being antithetical to economic growth. Now, that is the policy and position of a whole lot of right-wing organizations in the world. For example, we have the AFD in Germany which is a full-on climate change denialist party. They say that climate change is not human beings' responsibility, that if it is happening, it's just, you know, something that happens in the environment. They are opposed to green politics. They are opposed to clean energy. They are opposed to eliminating coal-fired power plants in Germany. So the AFD is just like a pretty standard, or at least like what we have come to believe to be a standard right-wing economic environmentalist policy. Another perfect example of this has been, of course, Donald Trump's Republican Party. 
Donald Trump caused the United States to leave the Paris Accord, an extremely important international agreement regarding climate change and CO2 emissions. He has a general disregard for environmental issues, for all sorts of pollution and coal and just wildlife protection, you know, anything like like the whole gamut of environmental policies. Uh, Trump seems to present environmental protections as feminine, caretaking, uh, something that is weak and anti-growth and unrealistic. This is something that is also mirrored in the politics of Trump's fascist allies, so people like the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers. Their politics is not centered on environmentalism. You know, these are not people who are trying to promote a green-brown alliance in the United States. However, they, when they talk about environmentalism, when they talk about the environment, they talk about it as a liberal thing. You know, it's the weak liberals, it's the weak left who want to weaken the United States by protecting the environment. Environmental controls are presented as feminine or as homosexual. Uh, It's presented as caretaking. Uh, They also engage in performative anti-environmental practices. Uh, For example, uh, if you have ever heard of rolling coal, this is an example. Uh, Rolling coal is something that people, at least in the southern and midwestern United States, do. They they, they sort of like modify a a big giant truck such that there's like a lever you can pull that puts too much gas into the engine so that it burns and produces fumes of black smoke. Uh, If you Google rolling coal, you can see image after image of people putting these fumes of black smoke on bicyclists or people driving Priuses or Teslas because they think that environmentalism is antithetical to their conservative right-wing politics. And that's the tension here, right? That's the complicated thing here, is that the difference between right-wing politics and environmentalism is not set in stone. It's not natural. It's not obvious. It's something that happened as, you know, a sort of like historical contingency in the late 20th, early 21st centuries. If we think about the history of the United States, for example, the Environmental Protection Act was passed under President Nixon, right? An extremely conservative Republican in most other respects. Environmental protection laws, as I said in previous episodes, have been passed by right-wing organizations, by right-wing politics, by right-wing political actors, including fascist ones, right? The disjunct between environmentalism and the right wing is something that's historically contingent. And in the United States especially, it has a lot to do with how the Republican Party realigned in the late 20th century. Now, under Nixon, this was when this transition was happening, right? Before Nixon, the Republican Party was a lowercase l liberal party. You know, they believed in personal freedom and economic freedom. And the Republican Party continues to say those things. But, you know, then they also say like, and we also need to restrict abortion and stuff like that, right? Before Nixon, like in the 60s, in the 50s, in the 40s, the Republican Party wasn't necessarily like that. You know, the Republican Party was also very much going to be in favor of the Equal Rights Amendment that would have enshrined the equality of women in the Constitution. Um, In the 70s and in the 80s, there was a transition in the Republican Party in which this sort of libertarian-leaning organization adopted a bunch of social conservative politics in order to win in the South, which, you know, encroached on the territory of the Democrats, who had previously been a 
very uneasy coalition between labor and some socially liberal political actors in the north of the United States, right? This is when the Republican Party cemented its total loss of the black vote by pursuing the Southern strategy, you know, by, by trying to get socially conservative white people in the United States to vote for them. This is also when the Republican Party became this strange mixture of a big business party and a socially conservative, conservative Christian party, right? And that is when the Republican Party finally cemented itself as being, you know, anti-environmental practices. This is when we get, you know, Reagan taking the solar panels that Carter had installed off of the White House, right? What I'm trying to say is that that isn't necessary. It's not natural. It's not, it's not something that is, you know, inherent to right-wing politics. And as climate change continues to worsen, as global warming continues to exacerbate things like the, the currently ongoing massive heat wave that much of Europe and the Middle East and South Asia are experiencing, right-wing political actors aren't going to be stupid, you know, and they're not going to be sitting on their hands. They're going to be taking these political opportunities as they come. And whether you're listening to this in Bangladesh or Great Britain or Baltimore, United States, uh, you're going to have to be paying attention to how the right wing is handling the environment, because to them, it's just another political football that they can use in order to advance their insidious nationalist agenda. All right. That was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. Please leave a review on whatever it is you're listening to this on. And I really mean that. I'm actually starting to get some like fascist reviews on various websites, um, and I'm a little bit worried that they're going to drown out uh, reviews by real listeners. So uh, if you could take a second to, to leave that review, it would really help. If you really like the podcast, please check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash 15 minutes of fascism. That's 15 minutes of fascism, all one word. That's also where you can reach me on Gmail, 15 minutes of fascism at gmail.com. I'm on Twitter at hist of the right. That's H-I-S-T of the right and fascism 15. All right. Next week, I'm going to be continuing this mini series bit talking about people who leave fascist movements, fascist defectors, people who turn on their former fascist comrades, either in an attempt to assassinate someone, you know, like the people trying to assassinate Hitler, or the group of people in the United States who have claimed to have de-radicalized themselves, you know, people like Matthew Heinbach. All right, thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next week.